to The People's Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. And welcome back for part two of our episode on cannabis and our health with our special guest expert, Dr. Jacqueline Marie Furland. Last week on The People Scientist, we discussed the difference between THC and CBD and the different effects that these molecules can have on our brain. We discussed how cannabis affects the functioning of our brain, as well as some helpful tips for safe use. Today, Dr. Furland and I are diving into the effects of cannabis on pain inflammation, and neurodegenerative disorders. So let's start off with some core takeaways. Last week, we briefly touched upon the effects of cannabis and sleep. I wanted to provide a little bit more detail here in our core takeaway. According to a paper published by Babson in 2017, CBD in particular holds promise for improving sleep quality and for treating insomnia. However, THC, as Dr. Freeland had previously pointed out, may have some negative side effects on sleep quality long term. So cannabis, which has both THC and CBD, may or may not have benefit depending on how much there is of each of these molecules in your particular strain. But CBD alone appears to have benefit for sleep quality. Now, in this episode, Dr. Freeland points out that cannabis may have benefit for neuropathic pain, severe epilepsy, and multiple sclerosis. In regard to other pain or conditions, the clinical evidence is just not sufficient enough yet. We also discuss areas of future clinical research, such as in eating disorders, anxiety, pain management in the elderly at risk for dementia, and safe use practices. So let's jump into the interview now. I think probably the funniest part about where we are with marijuana nowadays is this discussion of legalization versus medical use. So we've legalized it, which we says it's safe to use recreationally, which again, I think can be true. However, when people advertise it, they advertise it as this can treat this many things. You know, it can treat your pain. It can treat, uh, you know, your nausea. Both of those can be true, by the way. All these different symptoms, you know, it can treat your irritable bowel disease, these sort of effects. However, they're not getting that information from a doctor. (laughs) They're getting that from their dispensary or a friend who told them, like you said, anecdotally, oh, this really helped my whatever. And I think the discussion of if you're going to be using it medically, you should be speaking to a physician to say, hey, how much should I use? Dose. Like if we look at drugs classically, let's say you have pain. And your doctor is giving you an anti-inflammatory to help with your pain. They give you a prescription that says, take one pill a day or one pill every six hours. And after this many doses, come check back in. Versus going to a dispensary and saying, oh, I have chronic pain. Finding a strain that works for you and you're kind of like figuring out what's going on without knowing, are there long-term effects of regularly using this? I think that if you're really wanting to pursue it from a medical perspective, you should speak to your physician just like you would anything else. And just remember that even though people who are selling these things, it might be totally safe for you to use, their vested interest, of course, is 
to sell the, you know, sell the product, which is absolutely fine. Nothing wrong in that. But really, when it comes to your health, you should speak to somebody who might be able to help you address that health concern. Do you think then, in your opinion, that it's safer to look to CBD to treat a lot of those symptoms that people are claiming cannabis can treat? I think it depends. So CBD, some of the real effective things, like I said before, it can reduce anxiety. It may affect inflammation. It does appear to have positive effects on that craving and relapse. Versus there's only a few things that THC are known to definitely help. So one is multiple sclerosis, which is a neurodegenerative disease. Uh, it only affects a certain few people. Uh, it does help pain in those patients. Uh, it's also known at low doses to help chronic pain, but not people experiencing things like cancer pain. Uh, there's specific types of pain, we can get into that if you like, that are really affected by low doses of THC and nausea. Anybody who's, you know, smoked weed has had the munchies probably, so you could see how that would work. So patients with extreme nausea or, you know, nausea induced by cancer treatment, it's great for those situations. It's, you know, really helps with that and helps them to keep being able to eat and maintain their health that way. But really some of the other claims are not actually that backed up by the data. So some of the inflammation stuff, it's mixed. The pain related to sort of, let's say, surgery pain, if you're recovering from surgery, the data do not support that cannabis will help your pain, actually. So I think it's just important to know, like, in what instances does it work versus when it doesn't. Versus CBD as well, you know, we don't really know the broad spectrum of what it can treat. But I think that as science continues to work with it, we'll be able to know more and get that information out to you as soon as we can. And it's something people are actively really working hard on right now because we know it it doesn't have so far doesn't appear to have negative side effects really other than diarrhea (laughs) and it could be perhaps be sustainable and it doesn't appear to be addictive so like these are things where cbd really looks like the great white hope really of the cannabinoid system and but we just don't have enough data yet Mm -hmm. so you were talking about specific pain, and a lot of my audience members live with different types of arthritis. Did you come oh, across yeah. any evidence on that? There appear to be, for rheumatoid arthritis or arthritic pain, virtually, unfortunately, no benefits. When So these are looking at studies, by the way, that looked at uh, cannabis versus placebo or uh, cannabis-like drugs versus placebo. And versus placebo, they did not improve. And if anything, there were more negative side effects associated with it. So the doses that you need to take to hopefully begin to affect the pain were associated with more anxiety, more paranoia. So Mm -hmm. when you're talking about patients sticking to a drug for treatment, obviously you want them to be comfortable in the drug and not be anxious all the time while they're taking it. So unfortunately for rheumatoid pain, uh, it didn't seem to have that big of an impact in the long term versus placebo. Uh, the biggest one is truly like chronic low back pain or uh, what's called neuropathy, you know, so a pain in your extremities, this sort of thing, uh, where people reported particularly under 10% THC had improved pain symptoms. So it did help their pain. But again, over that dose, suddenly you're getting these negative side effects of being high and uh, like, so like the anxiety and such where it didn't improve the pain any further and only had really more of these negative impacts. So, the, yeah, it appears chronic pain is really the, the best, uh, other than, of course, the MS-related pain. So if you were wanting to look up some of the papers or research that Dr. Ferland was referring to, there was 
this great review that was published in 2017 in the Annals of Internal Medicine, where they combined 11 systematic reviews and 32 primary studies to really have that final conclusion of, does cannabis actually help with chronic pain? And the authors had concluded that the limited evidence does indeed suggest that cannabis may alleviate neuropathic pain in some patients. But right now, there is insufficient evidence that exists for other types of chronic pain. They also noted that it was important to balance the potential pro of taking cannabis versus the potential negative side effects. For example, in some of the studies, they noted that there was an increased risk for motor vehicle accidents, psychotic symptoms, and short-term cognitive impairment which Dr. Furland has already discussed with us at length, particularly in part one of this episode. So if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you go back and give that one a listen. You know, thinking of this potential negative side effect of cannabis, which is reduced cognitive function, it makes me think of how cannabis may be used in the elderly. I mean, we know that the elderly often suffer from very severe pain, either from arthritis, neuropathic pain, or from injuries. And a lot of the times with severe pain, the elderly may be prescribed opioid medications, you know, which we do know can cause temporary delirium or may also reduce cognitive function. And so I wonder if some elderly individuals are turning to cannabis or CBD to help reduce their pain. But we also need to take into consideration that if these individuals also also have dementia or, or are at risk for dementia, if cannabis would make that worse, or maybe it would be a better alternative to opioids. You know, do we know anything about about that for pain management in the elderly? I think there is some data looking at working memory. So like when you're dealing with a task, let's say you're trying to remember a series of numbers, that's what activates your working memory. There appears to be some negative impact of CBD on that in rats. However, I don't know in humans whether or not that's true as well. In terms of cognition, uh, exactly, we're you know, an older population now, older than ever, where more people are just at risk for developing you know, cognitive impairment or forms of dementia. I don't think there's a lot of evidence yet to support whether or not it will negatively or positively impact that. Uh, in terms of these things, so either THC or CBD, really negatively impacting cognition, there's some evidence, but a lot of it shows that, let's say... THC, for example, has been associated with poor cognition, like working memory. But those effects seem to reverse if you would go off the drug for a while. So that seems to be very positive. But in terms of enhancing cognition, I've not really seen anything to that effect. But in terms of, yeah, trying to figure out, is it going to be that big of a negative impact is a very good question, actually. Mm -hmm. And exactly, if you have chronic peripheral pain, so I mean in your hands and your feet and your low back, these sort of things that make it difficult for you to do your day-to-day, which becomes more common as we get older, that might be a great population to sort of observe, you know, a low dose of THC. Are they a good candidate for that? And will it negatively affect them? Mm -hmm. Yes, you're absolutely right. Well, if that research comes out, then you can bet that we will be updating all of you, because I myself am interested in that. Another area or another patient population that I think could benefit, and anecdotally they were. When I did a rotation through uh, eating disorders clinic, a lot of uh, young women that suffered from bulimia or anorexia, part of their rehabilitation was actually to start taking cannabis to increase their appetite and their desire to eat. I think that is a great population to do that. And even for the mere fact of uh, one issue in that population is um, enjoyment of food, 
you know, where you're like, you're completely separating yourself from the problem and you're restricting your food intake, obviously to dangerous levels. And not only will it increase your appetite, which can be stressful for somebody who's in that recovery position, but also to enjoy the food itself. So that's, that's why a lot of people like to use it, right? Like a lot of people will cite, I use it to, I get high to listen to music and eat good food. Because <laughs> yeah. it makes those experiences so much more salient and enjoyable. So I think that avenue actually for increasing appetites in terms of not only just to get them to put on weight and to be healthy, but even perhaps to maybe assess their relationship with food could be very interesting. Um, and something that probably deserves to be explored more and more. Mm-hmm. Because, like, there was this one review that was published in JAMA back in 2015, where they were essentially looking at the a clinical review of looking at medical marijuana for the treatment of pain. And they have this long list in here where they look at each state and what they had, they could approve uh, medical marijuana prescription for, the different conditions uh-huh. that they could. And it's just, like, for example, if you look in Alaska, they would prescribe it for cachexia, which is a lot of weight loss and loss of appetite, cancer, chronic pain, epilepsy. Have you come across any research on epilepsy or Epilepsy. So absolutely there are these cases where, you know, you have these really powerful and very real anecdotes of people with their children who have intractable seizures or seizures that won't stop. One in particular, which is called Dravet syndrome, where they were giving their children cannabis to treat it. And actually, this is, I should have mentioned this, but this is where CBD has really shown and is actually legal for treating in the States is for Dravet syndrome for what's, uh, the drug is called Epidiolex, which is just a concentrated pure form of CBD. And it is approved to help these children with these seizures and it is effective. So uh, in terms of seizures in cannabis itself, it doesn't, it might be just the CBD in the weed itself is actually what's having the positive effect so because Dravet syndrome is so extreme and very difficult to treat, that's a very extreme case of uh, epilepsy. I think in cases of like more standard epilepsy, it may not be as effective as my understanding. But again, more research as we go. We're trying to figure that out. But definitely THC and that endocannabinoid system works with how the brain fires and causes seizures. So it makes sense as a potential target. I mean, when we look as well in Connecticut, it's approved for Parkinson's disease as well. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. It may be the spasticity. So in MS, which is like what I was saying before, it's approved for uh, MS-related pain. And that's because in MS, basically what's happening is your your, uh, limbs and your body cannot send the signals up to your brain because your spinal cord has sort of uh, degenerating in its own way. And you get these spasms in your body because you're body's trying to recover and send those signals so that's called spasticity and marijuana appears to be very effective for that so i wonder if Mm -hmm. that's some motor symptoms for parkinson's as well that's fascinating uh let's see some other conditions illinois actually has one of the longest lists for the number (laughs) for the number of conditions that the physicians there correct yeah it is agitation related to alzheimer's disease for example is in here uh, rheumatoid arthritis they have it approved for even though there's not mm-hmm. much strong clinical data to prove that it could be as well if you're prescribing a low dose of thc you know strain of marijuana there's a lot of a lot to be discussed of taking people who take for example cbd and it's not any better than placebo but it makes them feel better so i wonder if that if they're going on along the lines of if it's a low enough low enough dose and it's not harmful to them 
then it's okay to prescribe for these reasons. And it does help those symptoms because, you know, placebo effect is real. And just because it's not necessarily directly treating the problem doesn't mean it does not make those patients feel better. Right. So that makes sense for the enhancement of mood. I think taking a moment to appreciate that THC and cannabis may affect inflammation, uh, sort of a bit of a murky area of research at the moment. So what we do know is that cannabis activates these endocannabinoid receptors, like I said, uh, and one of them is directly related to immune function. So it can affect long-term inflammatory responses. And there is actually some evidence that actually CBD uh, can help with symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease, which is a a syndrome of inflammation in the gut, uh, an immune reaction in the gut, and it does appear to improve those symptoms. So it does look like it can have an effect on the immune system, but really the long-term effects, we're still figuring that out. But again, it's being pursued as a potential treatment. Do you think there are differences in dependence for CBD versus cannabis that has THC in it? I have yet to hear of a case of people being dependent on CBD, which that's a really important, I've yet. Right. (laughs) Um, However, it's because all the data shows from animals and from people alike, that if you just take CBD, it's not rewarding. Meaning like you're not wanting to take it again because it made you feel good. Mm-hmm. The reason why CBD, I guess, could become something that would increase dependence is because it's removing the thing that feels bad, right? If you're anxious, you could use CBD to help with your anxiety. But that being said, I think that THC is definitely way more addictive. And this is a topic that's worth discussing because for a long time we didn't think it was addictive but then so there's a study uh called the NISARC which is basically this huge epidemiological study conducted uh in the United States where they survey people all across the country and people of people who use cannabis regularly 30 percent of them meet the criteria for cannabis addiction which is up there with alcohol and heroin actually so Of course, the abuse liability, meaning when I take it, the likelihood to become addicted very fast is not as high. But just given the availability of the drug, it is actually shown to be very addictive. And people who do transition to using it, going from I was using it recreationally because I enjoyed it to saying, oh, I use it to sleep. I use it for my anxiety. I use it because now I just habitually do. It's about 30% of regular users, according to that data set, which is way higher than anybody anticipated, I feel. Right. So that was a seminal study that came out, I think, uh, 2017, they showed that. And they're going to continue to monitor people as it becomes more available. Does that increase? Does that stay stable? We don't really know yet. Uh, so do know that, especially if you're prone to more of like addictive like personality, we say, if you're wanting to use it because you need to use it to you know, reduce your anxiety, these are the moments you have to ask yourself, am I at risk, sort of becoming dependent on the drug? Mm-hmm. That's where the conversation with their physician is important, right? Like the first step would be, well, what's causing my anxiety, right? And really Absolutely. getting to the root cause <laughs> of the problem, I think should be the first and foremost step that anyone takes if they feel like they are living with anxiety. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy and finding healthy coping mechanisms that doesn't rely on a substance Absolutely. such as cannabis, first and foremost. But then if it's a generalized anxiety disorder that these first steps couldn't help, then perhaps in that regard, with the guidance of a physician, it could help. But yeah, it's that whole 
controversy of being dependent on something. Is it treating it as a medicine or treating it as a drug? Exactly. You know, it's a really fine line. And in, at least in the United States, in many places where it's still, it's funny because it's still technically illegal here. Right. <laughs> you know, we're not, it's federally illegal, but some states allow this pass of what they say is acceptable use. And yeah, I think that we're trying to figure out what is that line and what, again, what is the dose? What is the treatment protocol? And just like I, I'm, you know, I'm not a physician, but I believe with any drug, whether or not that's, you know, for a mental health condition or something you're trying to, you know, improve upon, the drug should be the entry point as how to get better. And you should have a treatment plan with your physician and your mental health provider that says, okay, well, we'll try it for this and we're going to monitor you, (laughs) you know, versus just like, okay, go out into this world, use as much as you like, you know, also even controlled dosing, for example, using like a vape pen, which has a set amount of THC in it and you know how much you're getting versus smoking a bud in like a bong or whatever, where you, you know, your inhalation might be different. The route of administration, meaning on how it gets into your brain is a little bit different uh, so yeah, these, these are all things to be, I think, discussed with your doctor. And I would certainly encourage physicians as well to be very much open to having this discussion because it's not going to be getting, it's not going away. You know, more and more people, the United Nations find that every year more people believe it's safe to use and we should have it legalized. And I think there's de- definitely merit for that, but it means that physicians down the road might be coming across these questions and they should really, you know, be ready to be there for their patients and same thing with mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I think is something wonderful that Canada has done, which they've given the public the option of how much THC, how much CBD they want in the different strains, Mm -hmm. or they're at least letting them know and be aware of that. And I think you really hit the nail on the head for what's most important. And that is THC and CBD will have different effects and that there are different side effects to each one as well. And if you want to reduce the risk of some of the psychoses that are associated with THC, particularly if you're younger or you're at risk for those things, then choosing a lower THC and a higher CBD may have the best benefit, yeah? Absolutely. And I think that that's also going to become a really big question in terms of regulation. So as we legalize it more and more, what are the things, like, so we're required in this country to say, you know, the potential negative health effects of tobacco, of uh, drinking alcohol, you know, drink responsibly. But there's not really that kind of campaign happening right now for marijuana in terms of how do you use it safely and who's going to regulate that? If you say there's this much THC content in your you know, plant you're selling, then who's going to you know, verify this information? And I think that's very interesting considering you know, we don't know actually what's in it. We believe the dispensary. But there's some evidence that shows out of Colorado and Washington I don't know about Canada, but certainly sometimes those amounts don't always match what they say they do. I think that regulation is perhaps an important aspect of this legalization process and saying you can't just sell, you know, 90% THC to whoever. Perhaps we should have a limit and saying this is what's safe. Or if you use this, there's more side effects associated, you know, on the packet of your, you know, your strain that you're picking up saying this is high THC, which may be associated with these effects you know i think that people people want to use but they also want to be informed nobody wants to get hurt from what they're using and trying to have a nice time with so Mm -hmm. i think that we're going to try and figure that out as we go 
And hopefully you are one <laughs> yeah. of those. Well, that's just it, Dr. Freeland. Here's one of those pioneers that's trying to, she's trying to figure out all that information there because we don't know. Like, we don't know. There could be a lot of benefit to these things, but there also could be some side effects or those individuals that are more at risk for those side effects. And really teasing out who is at risk and who would benefit the best is really what's the most important information. Absolutely. And I think that as medicine also catches up to science, because, you know, science every day is generating new data on what's right. But when you look at it from a doctor's perspective, they're very much like, I have this patient with this pain, let's say, and I want to give them treatment. What's the best dose to give them? And we're really, we're working on that in terms of like, what is the best dose? What would you recommend? You know, if you had a patient coming in who was like, oh, I want to use CBD for anxiety. Is that Okay. And I was speaking to a group of psychiatry residents not that long ago about this topic. And that was their question. Like, well, what is the dose? And I'm like, I don't think we know yet. Right. <laughs> you know? And like, again, we're working really hard to find out what are the, if you go higher with the dose, what are the negative side effects, of course. But is it necessary to have so much of the drug in order to get that effect? Uh, and these sort of things. Every day we're trying to figure out how is it working? What's it doing? What's going what's gonna to happen if you use it? And uh just keep listening and listen, you know, ask your physician if you really want to, you know, how is this going to negatively impact me? And they hopefully will be able to give you the most up-to-date research as they learn about it. And us as scientists will try and do our part <laughs> by getting out there. And that's exactly what we're doing on this yeah, podcast absolutely. today. Trying to get the evidence to all of you. I think having the discussion about how you use the drug is really important. So there's recent data that shows uh that vaping, so for example, from a vape pen where you're getting like a set amount of oil that's being ignited and you're inhaling it, is does appear to be safer for things like your lungs and stuff like that compared to using a joint or a bong, uh, where it might be have like a more negative impact on like your lungs itself. Which smoking anything in general uh, increases your risk of stuff like cancer and this sort of thing. But it appears that vaping helps with that, it being a somewhat safer alternative. For your lungs, at least. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. So the funny thing with edible, I mean, anybody who's had a bad edible story, it always goes like this. I took some edibles. I ate half a cookie. I waited an hour. I didn't feel anything. <laughs> so I ate the other half of the cookie. And the next thing they know, they are extremely high, way more than they intended to be, and they're high for hours. And that's because as your stomach acid sort of breaks down the drug and it gets into your bloodstream... The uptake is longer, so it can take an hour to an hour and a half for the drug to set in, but it lasts way longer as well. So using an edible, it's actually more difficult to administer that because we don't really know how people are going to react to it. It depends on a lot of different factors. The THC content in the edible, how your stomach digests the edible, your response to it. Uh, what you ate prior exactly. to it. yeah. <laughs> and in fact, uh, I did my degrees in Vancouver, British Columbia, where the medical cannabis was a, widely available for a long time, but there was a big discussion of removing edibles altogether and not making those accessible to people to sell in these shops because you couldn't guarantee, you know, oh, just take one gummy, you get this response. I also want to take a moment to talk about if you're going to be using these gummies, you know, which is great. You know, that's your, your preferred route to take it. So actually women prefer to be more likely to use an edible or like a tincture, like an oil. Make sure you lock that up away from your kids. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> more and more kids nowadays, we have these reports of kids, oh, well, I'll have part of dad's brownie or whatever. And then they kind of keep going back to it. And that's something that's really 
underexplored in the literature so far is juvenile exposure to THC and how that impacts you in the long term. But accidental exposures are happening really regularly now. So just like you would like medicine or anything, you know, keep these things like you wouldn't want your kid getting into your alcohol supply, like mm -hmm. keeping them away from your kids. Because, you know, kids are experimental and they'll, oh, oh, this tastes nice. It looks like candy. For sure, right? <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't think anything twice. It's candy. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, something to be aware of. That's a very good piece of advice. <laughs> I think that it's, it's really interesting how I didn't anticipate coming into this field. So I will say during my PhD, I was much more decision-making and other drugs of abuse, so particularly cocaine. I studied how decision-making affected likelihood to become addicted to cocaine. And when I joined the current lab I'm in and started to learn about this, I didn't really appreciate how polarized the issue was. People be saying, you know, either oh, it's, it's great for you, there's no negative side effects, it's not addictive, which unfortunately isn't necessarily the case. And people saying, you know, it's terrible for you, you should never use it. You know, there was recently an article that came out in the New York Times that was highlighting this book saying how cannabis is going to make everybody become psychotic and dangerous and it's associated with increased murder rates, this sort of thing. And these two extremes really, of course, what is reality lies in the middle. And I think that when you, if you ever read these articles or if you're wondering, you know, what is the actual result, just maybe take your time and uh, obviously as researchers, we'll try and get it out to you, the data in terms of not just when we write articles and find results, but like this podcast, talking about it, saying things, but also try and take your time to talk to people and maybe even ask their experience. Listen to people who maybe don't have the same experience as others saying, oh, it's great. People who said they had a hard time with it ask what made it bad for you, you know? And I think just be aware of it's somewhere in the middle and finding what works for you. It's probably dependent on a lot of different factors and just trying to make the best choice with the information we have. You know, there's so many anecdotes where someone will say it does the best thing for me and someone else will say I tried it once or twice and it made me so anxious yeah. and I couldn't do it. And what makes the difference between how those two people respond and that's important information we need to find out. Absolutely. And kind of like alcohol, you know, when we're younger and we've got this peer pressure around using it, I think that'll become more and more true for cannabis because it is becoming uh, recreational use. It's becoming more available. And just like I would say to kids who are drinking, you know, like be careful when you drink too much, you know, just like think about just because other people around you are using it doesn't mean you should. And how are you responding to it? Even if it's in a social context and you feel the pressure to be like, oh, yeah, I'll give it a go, but I don't like it. I'm one of those people who feels anxious. Then maybe don't stop using it. You know, it's just not for you. And yeah, just listen to yourself because your brain's telling you <laughs> it's not working for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Freeland, for coming on and being a guest speaker <laughs> on the People Scientist podcast today. She was fantastic, was she not? I'm so happy that I was able to bring you on here, an expert on cannabis, to really give us the differentiation between CBD, cannabis, the scientific evidence that we can finally know what do we have for information out there, strong, solid information, and the future and the areas of research that we hope to touch upon. And you can bet that as the scientific evidence comes out that we will make sure to update you. Maybe we can do an update podcast. That would be great. It's so, as yeah, things become legal and more places for figuring it out, you know, absolutely. That'd be kind of fun to follow up. Mm -hmm. 
So thank you for tuning in, my People Scientist Army. You can meet me back here next week, the same time in the same place. I hope you all have a super healthy week. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.